We are in a series, and that series is in Romans. It's in Romans chapter 8. And a few weeks ago, I tried to start us out by saying that this is, by many theologians, considered to be the greatest chapter in all of the Bible. Now, can we put a label such as the greatest when it comes to the Scriptures? Probably not. But the reason it has that sort of title and it has that notoriety is because of the incredible truths that are jam-packed into this one chapter. I don't know if you have had an opportunity to read it multiple times in multiple translations. I would highly encourage that you do that. Read the New American Standard. Read it in the NIV. Read it in the New Living. Read it in the Message. Read it in things that you can get sort of a different vibe and feel for it. It will be very helpful in understanding. And I don't know if you've tried just yet to put it to memory, but let me encourage you, try. If it takes you the next two years to memorize Romans chapter 8, fantastic. Because if you can put it into your mind and then regularly and routinely go back to what this chapter has to say, um, it'll be very helpful. Dan last week told us that he writes down cards. I do the exact same thing. And so right here on this side of the first four verses, on this side of the next four verses, et cetera, et cetera, I just keep these cards with me. You can see they have taken the shape of my pants <laughs> is what they have taken in here. I just want to beg you. Maybe you don't memorize. It's okay. Get in front of you, in your mind, the truths that are in Romans chapter 8. I promise you this. You will never regret putting Romans chapter 8 um, into your mind and heart. Now, in the first week, um, we just said some very simple things in order to uh, kick it off, but it is perhaps one of the most famous sections of the entire chapter, and it begins with no condemnation. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's how the chapter begins, and the chapter ends with no separation. And we said this in the first four verses, we can find out and we can be assured that Jesus offers us acceptance. And for all those who will embrace it, it's a guaranteed acceptance. We'll see that here today. Last week, Dan taught us that the outlook of the Spirit is life and peace. The outlook of the flesh is death, but the outlook of the Spirit is life and peace. I don't know how much of your time in a typical week is spent consciously thinking about surrendering your will over to the Father's and walking in the power of the Holy Spirit. You may not need as much time as I do, but I have found that the older that I get, the more difficult it becomes to choose the Holy Spirit. My flesh, for some strange reason, is not um, um, intimidated by my thoughts and, and my demands. Um, and when I just tell it to go away, it just doesn't go away. And the older that I get, I thought what would happen is, is that I would have an easier time obeying the Lord, that my desires and thoughts would so be naturally oriented towards the things of God, and the power of this flesh would lessen and lessen over time, and I, would, and I would need just a little bit of help from Jesus as I got older. I thought when I was 80 years old, every now and then I'll have to pray to ask God for help, but otherwise I'll just be a walking saint. And I have found the opposite to be true. When I first started growing as a believer, back when the Lord used this atheist philosophy professor at Auburn University at Montgomery, it's hard to even say the words, I'm in there. But when I had this, this professor that, 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 that attacked all things religion, 
And then when I surrendered the controls of my life, said, I'm yours. It seemed as though everything on the front end was easy. It seemed like every prayer was answered in the affirmative. It seemed like everything that I was asking God to do just came, again, it seemed almost natural to me. This is a true story. So I grew up in a Christian home, and and so I thought, you know, as I'm growing now, I'm going to read through the entire Bible, and I read through the entire Bible. Yes, I made it through Leviticus, um, even. Made it all the way through the Bible, and I got to the end, and I said, well, now I know everything there is to know. I really thought that at that age. Everything seemed easier then. Now it seems as though moment by moment, whether that's in my home, whether it's at work, whether it's in the neighborhood, it seems as though, man, this flesh, and I don't want to wreak havoc on my wife, and I don't want to do that to my kids. And so you have this increasing desire in there to actually love God and to love people. It just seems like it's getting harder to love God and harder to love people. And the Holy Spirit says, have you asked for my help? Because I'll give it to you. I'll guide you. I'll lead you. Yes, I will continue to conform you into the image of the Son, which is God's obsession to make you and to make me look and sound and act and love just like his Son. So, I cannot recommend more, do everything you can to fight and to put this to memory so that in any given moment you can come back to what is true. We said this too, there is no uh, imperative in this entire chapter. There's no direct command that's given. Everything in here is just about what is true. It's all indicatives. It is God telling us this is true, this is true, this is true, this is is what he has done, what he has done, what he has done um, on our behalf. And if we know what is true, if we're immersed in what is true, then we're going to have a much better opportunity to do based on what is true. I'm going to hopefully walk through this section of the scriptures fairly quickly because I don't think it needs a tremendous amount of explanation, but I do think that the implications for us can be profound um, this morning. Just want to remind you, we said this there are many ways to divide up the chapter. We divide it up this way. We are uh, free from the penalty of sin in the first four verses. Verses 5 through 17, we are free from the power of sin. Verses 18 through 25 lets us know we're free from the presence of sin. And then finally, in verses 26 through 39, it simply talks about the person and the purpose of God. Today, we're going a tad bit out of order, and we're doing that for a very good reason. We have some friends that are with us we're going to hear from in just a moment. And they've got a a wonderful opportunity for us to mimic what it is the Scriptures call us to do on a grand scale. We've got a a great opportunity to do it. And So we're taking this just a tad bit out of order. We're going to be looking at verses 14 through 17. Next week, we'll come back, and we'll go to uh, verses 9 uh, through 13. If you are physically able, in honor of God's word, would you stand as we read, as I read Romans chapter 8, verses 14 through 17. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness, witness with our spirit 
that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. You may be seated. Now, this is uh, true uh, for all of us in life, and I don't think you'll, um, uh, uh, I don't think I have to sell this to you. Fear oftentimes drives us. In relationships, oftentimes fear will drive us. We see this in the earliest stages of our life. We see it on the playground. We see that kids make certain decisions around other kids so that they can be acceptable. Now, as we grow up, although the the way that we do that looks a little bit different than they do on the playground, the, the principle remains the same. Fear oftentimes will drive us in our relationships. If we have an individual that we somehow or another believe either has power over us or has an influence upon us, we want desperately to gain their favor. We are oftentimes driven by the fear that they will not accept us, love us, embrace us, etc. And so it drives us. In fact, it will drive us sometimes to make irrational decisions, decisions that we wouldn't normally make if we weren't trying to do everything within our power to gain this person's approval. don't have to go to many movies at all. They capture this well. Oftentimes, comedies capture this the best, where we get a chance to look at the utter foolishness and stupidity of the character in front of us, and then the principal hits us later on, doesn't it? Fear, hear me, drives us. It's not just true of relationships. Fear of loss can drive us. Fear of not having may drive us. Some of us grew up in a family and a background that did not have much at all, and our fear of not having enough drives the way that we work. It causes us to become, at times, workaholics. Now, please, I'm not saying that that's always a bad thing. I'm not saying that, the, that, that fear cannot be a good thing at times in our lives. If you are standing up on top of one of the tallest buildings in the world, it is a good thing to fear falling. That's good, it's healthy, it's right. What I'm saying is in life, fear oftentimes drives us to make decisions that sometimes will bring destruction to ourselves and to others. And then there's love, and love compels us. Love draws us. Love will cause us at times to make decisions that others may look at and say, wow, that is foolish, where we will give of ourselves. But it's not because we're afraid of something we're going to lose. It's because of something we want for someone else. Fear drives us. Love compels us. Ladies, have you given birth to more than two children? This is a great example that love compels us. Who in their right mind would go through that process twice? If you know what's coming and then you'd say, yeah, I'm going to do it again. Love compels us. Have you ever seen the father compelled to love his son when his son just simply will not love him back? It's true when they're three. It's true when they're 13. 
It's true when they're 43. Love compels us. Fear drives us. In verse 14, Paul lets us know here a few things about the Holy Spirit. He tells us that those who are led by the Spirit are the children of God. Now, what is he referring here to by led by the Spirit? He's not referring to we are led to go to a certain college or we're led to put on a certain outfit or we're led to to talk to a certain friend. He's not talking about the the regular day in and day out uh, uh, being led. He's talking about what is tied into the verses preceding this, which we'll hit next week. But he's talking about the fight that we have against the flesh and the fight for walking in the Spirit. That the Holy Spirit, who is making us more holy in our actions, we have been declared righteous. There's nothing more to be added to the righteousness that has been given to us in Christ. But in terms of us living that out, the Holy Spirit is there to help us fight against sin and for righteousness. Those who are led in that particular fight are indeed children of God. And I know right now there are several of us in this room that wonder whether or not we really are children of God. Do you hate your sin? And do you want to walk in a manner that is honoring to God, loving to people, helpful? If you have this deep-seated yearning inside that hates what it is that you do, then join Paul in Romans chapter 7, that which I want to do, I don't, that which I hate doing, I find myself doing, who's going to rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to Jesus Christ, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you hate your sin, it is a good indication that you belong to God. If you don't hate sin, it's a good indication you don't belong to God. And if you want God to do something about that sin in your life, if you are tired of repenting, but you find yourself repenting more than you really want to repent, if if you're there, it's a good indication that you know Jesus. Perfection is coming when Jesus returns. There will be a day in which no sin will happen. No one will be impacted by the effects of the fall. That day is coming. Unfortunately, it's not right now. I wish it was. I'd be happy for this short sermon to be interrupted by Jesus returning. It'd be great. Those who are led by the Spirit are children of God. The Spirit leads us in our fight against sin and our fight for righteousness. In verse 15 and 16 tells us that the children of God are drawn to God. The Spirit frees us, in verse 15, from seeing ourselves as slaves, and it now enables us to see ourselves as sons, in verse 16. He assures us, he frees us from seeing ourselves as as, uh, slaves, And then he assures us that we are indeed the children of God. We were chosen by God. Can I make a statement for you today? I hope hope you hear this. Our view of God determines all of our behavior. How it is that we view who God is and how he sees us drives all of our behavior. And there are many of us in this room right now that are true, born-again, spirit-filled believers, Christians, and we are driven by fear rather than being compelled by love. And even when I make this statement, some of us just went, yeah, he's getting on to me. I'm not. 
My prayer is, is that God would do something in our minds and in our hearts and move us away from being driven by fear of being rejected by God and being compelled by the love that Christ has given, always will give. It will never run out. But there is no preacher on the planet that can give an illustration that is so compelling that will say, well, this is foolish, and I will never again believe that, and hallelujah, this is where I'm going to live only. Guess who does that? The Spirit. And how does the Spirit do that? I am convinced. It is by him telling us over and over and over again, wash this over your mind. It's good to hear your own voice saying this. Oh, man, is it great to hear the Lord singing over you, rejoicing over you. In verse 15 and 16, it tells us that the children of God are drawn to God. In verse 17, it tells us that those who are drawn by God will be blessed by God. It lets us know that there is an inheritance that's coming. Now, it's not... An inheritance in the strictest sense where you had an individual who would die and then leave those that are in their line a certain amount of land, money, etc. And think that this has to do with everything that God wants to give us is now ours. It is a guarantee. It will happen. It's not that it might happen. It will happen. The Holy Spirit guarantees us that there's inheritance coming. And many of us would say, yes, amen, all right, I'm, I'm Love, joy, peace, patience, contentment, all of those things God is going to guarantee us. Yes, there's going to be a land. Yes, there's going to be heaven. Yes, there's going to be all that. But, but, but the, the joy, um, the contentment, so that we all have longed for, that is coming in abundance. Now, what precedes that? Let's just know at the end of verse 17 there. Suffering. All of these goodies are coming, and they're coming in abundance and then what is going to happen right now is there's going to be some suffering that we have. Those who are drawn by God will be blessed by God. Those that will be blessed by God will suffer now. The Spirit, however, gives us grace in the hour of our greatest need. Now, we're going to talk much more about that in, in some of the weeks to come. In fact, we've decided to uh, shift our calendar just a little bit, and we're going to take um, a handful of weeks, and just simply park on this whole concept of what biblical suffering actually means. Because I think, as one of my dear friends um, wisely said it, I, I think there's a lot of trauma that we experience in suffering. And so how do we handle trauma? We're going to be looking at that um, in the future. For now, here's all I want to say, is that the Holy Spirit will be sufficient to bring to you the same patience, the same endurance, and the same ability, listen, to thrive, not just merely survive, in the midst of suffering. It's a fact. It's a truth. It's an indicative that comes from Romans chapter 8. Whether you believe that or not does not change the fact that it is true and it is real. Now the only difference is, am I going to choose to believe and act in life as if it is true? we got an excellent opportunity to hear more, and I just want to close um, with just simply this. 
the process of adoption in Rome was rather fascinating. And so uh, the, the, the person who would be doing the adopting would be going to what was their version of the courts. And in that process, the individual who was being adopted absolutely had the right to refuse to be adopted. And if they refused to be adopted, they would not be adopted. And so there was this little game of sorts almost. And so the father of the child, most often a son, although daughters were adopted from time to time, but it was most often a son, the father of the, the, the natural father of the son, the biological father, would also show up to this court proceeding. And then the judge, in essence, would say, um, are, are you open to this? Are you willing to do this? He'd say, no. And he was doing this to show his affection to his biological child. He was all in. A second time, are you willing to no? A third time, finally consenting and saying yes. And the child would give their consent to this as well. And then the, the, the adoptive father would then receive the rights for this particular child. And that child, at that moment, would receive everything that was coming to that child legally. Now hear this. The biological children of someone could be removed from that will at will. The adoptive child could never be removed from the will, not legally. So what the adoptive father is saying is, I choose you, and I choose you forever. And the child also had to say, and I choose you. And I choose to believe that you are not a liar. In essence, what they were saying was, I choose for the rest of my life to be compelled by love rather than driven by fear. 